This is an ABC podcast. When I first learnt about the laws, I was quite taken aback. Obviously, keeping track of your menstrual cycle, how you're supposed to relate to your husband, for example, I was taught that I can't pass a fork to my husband during this period. I would have to put the fork down on the table for him to pick it up because just in case my finger would brush against his hand and that would arouse him, you know, and who knows where that would lead. Elizabeth Coolass, welcome to Days Like These. Australia is home to a small fraction of the world's Jewish population, but the spectrum of Jewish life here is wide and rich. Melbourne alone has some 50-odd synagogues, ranging from the ultra-Orthodox to a secular congregation that operates without a rabbi. And it's in that secular community that Harvey Rubenstein would find her unique spiritual place. But her roots lie deep in Orthodox Judaism, where a complex system of rules shapes every aspect of life, from cradle to grave. Being orthodox meant we lived our lives in a way that was different. So we dressed in a particular way. I observed the laws of modesty, which meant I always wore a skirt, always had sleeves covering my elbows and my neckline had to cover my collarbone. I observed all the laws of kosher, certain foods that we could and couldn't eat, um, no mixing of dairy and meat. So going out to restaurants was not at all part of my upbringing. We always would say a blessing before eating food and then also a blessing after eating food and there were certain blessings depending on what type of food that we ate. I observed the Sabbath. That was also a big part of being orthodox. We would abstain from doing certain things, so no electricity, no driving cars. There were a lot of festivals that we observed during the year and the whole rhythm of our life really revolved around these different festivals with a whole set of rituals and traditions. And communal life was very vibrant. Everything we did somehow involved the community. From the minute I woke up until going to bed, there was always some way of reminding me that I was Jewish. We had non-Jewish neighbours that we would play with all the time as kids, but we would never go out with them for dinner. And we certainly couldn't go to their house for dinner. So there was always a sense of difference and distinction, but a sense of pride that we could operate in the non-Jewish world and participate in the non-Jewish world. But we were very conscious that we had different belief system. They have a different relationship with God. God expects different things from them than he does from us. God's given us this special rule book that we're supposed to follow. It's our blueprint for life. And this is what we have to do to nurture and foster that relationship. Javi's tight-knit community lives within this matrix of God-given laws. 
And those laws impact men and women differently, whether it's rules about dress, prayer, child rearing. And central to maintaining this way of life is the strict separation of the sexes. All the men in my world wore head coverings, a kippah, and also a hat, a black hat. All the women, if they were married, would wear wigs. Everything in my world was segregated, so any social function was always separated. There were either functions specifically for men or specifically for women. But if it was a function for, like, say, a wedding or a bar mitzvah, there would be this kind of separation in the middle of the room and all the men would sit on one side and the women would sit on another side with a partition in the middle. All efforts were made to try to avoid boys and girls hooking up, the idea being that you need to save yourself for marriage and being married was really the only legitimate way to be in a relationship. So a lot of effort is put into keeping people separate. There's a whole set of rules around boys and girls not touching, and they actually had a term for this called shomer negia. So it was a bit of a, a line that you would use to categorise people as to whether, you know, how far their relationships would go. It was very clear what side of the line I fell on, which was I would be shomer negia, and people who aren't shomer negia were seen as frivolous and playing with fire. Men were basically, yeah, a foreign entity to me. Apart from the people in your immediate family, women were allowed to observe and listen to men more than men were allowed to observe and listen to women. You know, we weren't allowed to sing in public, for example, and the gender roles were very clearly defined. The father always sits at the head of the table, the men get served first, and the women are up in the kitchen serving the meal. The men would sing at the table and the women were not really, you know, we were allowed to sing if men were singing as well, but it's not like we could belt it out. The gender roles were very entrenched and you were taught that God loves us equally, but men have more of an obligation than women. So men are the ones who are obliged to go and pray three times a day and go to synagogue. But don't worry, women, it's not that God doesn't love you. It's that, you know, you've already got your own special connection with God. You can stay at home and be with the children. Don't worry about rushing off to synagogue. The way the rules were framed was this is necessary. This is part of God's plan for us. It's part of a system that has existed for 3,000 years. We're so fortunate to have these esteemed rabbis who can interpret the rules for us and tell us how to live our life. The rule book was just considered the centre point of that existence. What I mean by the rule book is the Torah, the Bible, but then all the interpretation and commentary that came after that, rabbinic interpretation and this system called the halakha, Halakha translates as the way or a way of being. It was really important not to break the rules because the rules were necessary to keep the community together and to keep us going. And that if we didn't stick to those rules, we would be the weak link in the chain and that it would compromise Jewish survival. 
Havi closely adheres to the halakha, but she's not completely cut off from the secular world either. Her siblings have pursued tertiary study, and there's an expectation that she will do the same. Following a two-year stay in Israel, where she studies and then teaches at a religious seminary, Harvey returns to Melbourne to begin her pharmacy degree. Going to university was a non-negotiable in my family. My parents were very adamant that we would go to university, but I was very reluctant to go to university. Firstly, it represented being immersed in the secular world, and that's something that I had a lot of contempt for. University was this big, bad place where there's a lot of non-Jewish people there and you're going to get tempted. And it was a huge clash of cultures for me and it was a very difficult time. And I remember walking into university and I'm just this fish out of water. I look different. I'm wearing frumpy clothes. I feel different because I've been warned about this place called university where all this seedy stuff happens that I have to be careful about. But I was also distracted because I was dating to be married. Dating involved being set up. So usually a mutual friend or perhaps a parent. It wasn't about going to a party or just seeing someone across the room and going up and asking for their number or striking up a conversation. None of that was part of my world. It was always about being set up by somebody else and having it arranged. So sometimes it was a blind date where you hadn't met the person but you were told a lot about them and on paper they might have looked good um, in terms of their religious observance and where they were at with life and then based on what was on paper you agree to go out with them. I did have a very brief encounter with my future husband before we started formally dating. I was having a lunch at my friend's house and my husband future husband knocked on the door unexpectedly towards the end of the lunch because he needed some keys to the synagogue. And so we got a glimpse of each other, but we didn't talk to each other. And I liked the way he looked and I thought he was nice just based on what I'd observed in the brief exchange. And so my friend set us up. Dating in my particular community just involves talking. So we would go to get a drink, maybe in a hotel lobby or maybe take a walk, but it all had to be very discreet so nobody could see you because there was definitely an element of secrecy around dating. You didn't really want people to know who you were dating and you certainly didn't want to run into anyone that you knew. So you'd try and go somewhere where you were anonymous and basically it just involved talking and finding out about each other. There was just an understanding that we're dating for marriage, we're not dating for fun. We're dating to see if we are a suitable life partner. He did sort of propose to me. I remember he picked me up from uni one afternoon on a Friday afternoon and took me to Fitzroy Gardens and he had a bunch of flowers. But there was no will you marry me moment that I can remember. (laughs) One of the first questions that a woman will be asked when she's engaged is, okay, when's your period? And it's sort of like, oh, okay. You need to know that about me, do you? Because you don't want to get married when you're in the period of being unclean. I mean, you can get married without that, but then you can't be with your husband on your wedding night, which is a bit of a bummer. Suddenly there was a whole new set of rules that I had to be aware of. It made me feel very grown up that 
I was now learning about these grown-up rules that I wasn't really supposed to learn about before. And I, I did think it was a little bit absurd, some of these rules, but like many other things in that world, I just went along with it. There's this sense that, well, we've been doing this for centuries, so surely they've got it right and they know what they're talking about. The other thing that made me accept these laws was the idea that sexuality in the Orthodox world was sort of quite taboo. Being in a sexual relationship was already a bit weird and awkward. And so when we bring all these laws into it, that God wants us to do this in a certain way, it made it more palatable to become sexually active in a way that was sanctioned. After a short engagement, Javi is married. Her time in Israel had only intensified her level of observance, and she holds fast to the new rules that frame her life as a married woman. If there's ever any doubt, a rabbi is always there to offer a voice of authority. And so it's this voice that Javi seeks out when she's stumped by a question. I'm 21 years old, newly married... And we're driving to the synagogue. We needed to get some advice from the rabbi. And I was a little bit apprehensive because it was quite a personal thing that we were asking. In order to understand what the question was we had for the rabbi, you need to understand we observed a whole set of rules around marital relations which involve a woman keeping track of her menstrual cycle. And after my period, I'd have to wait seven clean days. And during that period of menstruating and then for the seven days following that, I wasn't allowed to be intimate with my husband. I wasn't even allowed to touch my husband. So for about two weeks of every month, we didn't have any intimate relations. And even to the point that we would separate our beds Part of that ritual is that after the period of seven clean days, the woman goes to a ritual bath called a mikvah and she immerses in the mikvah and when she comes out, she is deemed clean or pure. And then there were a whole set of rules around how to check yourself to make sure that you had in fact finished your period and that the seven clean days were in fact seven clean days. So I was taught how to check. It's just a white cloth that you're supposed to use, just a square, you know, like say 10 by 10 centimetres. It was literally just inserting that cloth and making sure that the colour was clear. We had to do that once a day and there was a particular time of day that was considered ideal to do it. I also was instructed to wear white undies during that period to make sure that any staining that did occur was clearly visible. You know, there could be a doubt without getting into too much detail. Sometimes it takes a few days for your period to properly finish and when you can start counting those seven days depends on whether your period's properly finished. And if you get a little bit of discharge maybe a day later, you might need to start counting your seven days from the beginning. So there was always this tension when I finished my period and then you start counting and then maybe a day later you might have a bit of discharge and then it's like, oh damn, I've got to start counting again. 
you obviously want to start counting your seven days as early as possible, but you don't want to break the rules either. I'm a letter of the law person and it's a whole new area. I want to do the right thing. And there was also an element of wanting to impress my husband. We barely knew each other and it was seen very much as a joint ritual because if I didn't follow the rules, it was his sin. It was both our sins, but if I don't follow the rules and I am fudging my results for my seven clean days, I'm really compromising his religious observance as well. So I'm about six months into our marriage and I'm observing the seven clean days and when I'm checking myself, I have a stain that's not quite red, but it's not clear either. It's a little bit hazy. And that's where the rabbi comes into it. The rabbi is the authority you go to for a second opinion. It's usually pretty discreet. Some people hand the sample to the rabbi's wife, others leave it in the letterbox with a label on it. But Harvey decides that they should take a drive. So I put it in the bag and I'm, I'm in the car with my husband and I'm feeling like I'm doing the right thing. I'm not sure if you have to make an appointment or if you can just rock up, but I remember that my husband sort of took the reins in terms of arranging the actual handover. I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable because it's quite intimate, but also feeling quite mature because this is what, you know, this is what grown-ups do, this is what couples do. I'm in couple land now and feeling quite pious about what I'm doing. We arrive at the synagogue. I'm, I waited in the car because it would have been immodest of me to just turn up to the rabbi and say, here, can you check this? I'm feeling a bit apprehensive because I want to know what the result is and I, I'm hoping the rabbi will say it's clean, that the stain that I've submitted is not menstrual blood but it's just a false alarm and that I can keep counting my seven clean days. I'm also feeling a bit uncomfortable because it's quite a personal thing and so I'm sitting in the car just waiting and I noticed the head rabbi of the synagogue walking out onto the balcony. I don't think I'd ever spoken to the rabbi personally but he was held in very high esteem. He's got the grey beard, the black hat, the black overcoat, quite an imposing figure. And um, I see this the rabbi come out onto the balcony and I'm thinking to myself, gee, what's he doing out on the balcony in broad daylight like he should be studying? And I see him a little bit hunched over He's looking at something, he's holding something in his hand and he's kind of hunched over, squinting, and I see him putting his glasses back on and then taking them back off and, and I realised what he was holding and what he was doing and he was actually looking at my sample that I'd submitted. He was looking at the white cloth with my stain on it. I just got this sudden sick feeling in my stomach when I realised what he was actually doing, that it was my cloth that he was looking at, my bodily fluids that he was looking at, this esteemed rabbi, it just, the whole picture seemed so wrong to me all of a sudden. Perhaps I didn't realise that it would be taken to that rabbi. I thought it would be perhaps an assistant rabbi or somebody else. I didn't know who would be inspecting my sample. I didn't think it would be the head rabbi. 
I felt very strange because on the one hand, I knew I was doing the right thing and to get the ruling from the rabbi was an important part of the process. But to actually see it happening in reality, to see a rabbi looking at my sample, it just hit me, you know, to see the mechanics of this happening and play out in front of me. Everything about it just seemed so wrong. I can't remember what the ruling was, whether it was clean or not, but I do remember leaving that space feeling quite confused and deflated. I think that that weird feeling in the pit of my stomach, I didn't have the language at the time, but I felt humiliated and violated in that moment. But that language wasn't part of my vernacular. And I think if I was an outsider looking in, in that moment, the word that comes to me is voyeurism. I'm part of this system where the things that I do in my private life are determined by men who barely know me, but they know a system and I'm beholden to that system. And I think what struck me in that moment was my private relationship with my husband is governed by all these external factors. The seed of doubt was planted in me at that time about how appropriate that was. Up until that point, it was entirely appropriate that my private life was governed by rabbis who make these decisions for me and who set the rules. And that was completely consistent with how I'd lived all my life. But there was something about that moment that like a flick, a switch went off in my head that maybe there's something inappropriate about this and maybe it goes too far in terms of how much I allow someone else to govern my private affairs. Sitting alone in that parked car on a busy suburban street, Harvey's confronted with the total reach of rabbinic law, an authority that she's lived under for the 21 years of her life. And what she witnessed that day it marks the beginning of her exit from Orthodox Judaism and into the secular world. That was a, a turning point for me in just recognising that something was not quite right. Once I got a taste for that sense of empowerment and liberation, I was on a trajectory to self-determination, forging my own path. It was an opening for me to start feeling what it's like to make decisions for yourself and not be beholden to a system that expects things from you that are not making you happy. And you know, the process, it's ongoing. Untangling your own Judaism from the orthodoxy that you grew up in, that doesn't happen overnight. Harvey also maintains a relationship with her siblings and her parents, one that's based on a mutual tolerance for each other's lifestyles. They might dress differently, eat different food, even pray differently. But they're family. That story was reported by the brilliant Sam Wicks. If there's a story that you want us to hear, please get in touch with us. You can email us, dayslikethese at abc.net.au.
We hope you're enjoying days like these. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also share us with a friend or share the word on Facebook or Twitter. Next time on Days Like These, how luck, coincidence and serendipity reunite a family with a long-lost treasure. I think it is a lucky charm for my grandfather to have survived the war, for this to have survived, to come back to Canberra within a few kilometres of where I live and be found by somebody whose father also served in the same theatre of war, who recognised it for what it was, is just amazing. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. Our season two reporting team includes Sam Wicks, James Viver and Melinda Lopez. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. Our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Russell Stapleton with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilly. The supervising producer for this episode was Justine Kelly and our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Our theme song is Yeah Na by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. From the team that brought you Finding Drago. This is Finding Desperado. Welcome to a new mystery. Just like the last one, it all begins with a book. The Guinness World Records. After skimming through this glorious golden tome, one record really jumped out at us. A record held by a man claiming to be the world's youngest filmmaker. A record that we believe is fake. Our search for this mysterious director and his world record winning film led us on a bizarre globe-trotting journey across Europe into the underground world of VHS horror movies and of course all over google.com. This is a story about trickery, lost films, famous frauds, and possibly fake Guinness World Records. This is Finding Desperado.